Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krauss, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. As you heard from our good friend Nick Ruffini with our new intro, uh, last week was Zach Albetta's first interview with Matt Johnson. It was awesome. Uh, I thought he did a great job and uh, just excited to partner up with him. So that's part of the Merge Network that we're under with uh, Nick Ruffini doing his Drummer's Resource. Check out his podcast, interviewing uh, pro drummers, pro musicians, uh, music insiders, and other professionals. Also, uh, Daniel Glass, his podcast is part of this network that we're involved with. Of course, most of us know Daniel as a great performer, great educator, and uh, he's going to have his unique perspective on topic-based uh, podcasting as opposed to interview-based podcast that Nick does and uh, we do as well. Today is my interview with uh, Jim Riley. Uh, I know you're thinking, what, Jim Riley, uh, you already interviewed Jim Riley. Not drummer Jim Riley from Rascal Flats. This is a different Jim Riley. This is a producer, songwriter. Jim has uh, been in Nashville for quite some time. Uh, he toured for about nine years with a band called the New Dillons, uh, very much in the vein of uh, R.E.M. Just a great hang, very knowledgeable, uh, loves drums. Uh, I love his quote, If a drum isn't working, the session is over. The drums inform everything. That's a direct quote from Jim Riley. His perspective on how to produce and uh, what drummers should know when you're working with a producer, uh, it was very insightful. And um, I've got some musical examples that we don't normally do, but um, he just wanted to drive home some uh, points about what Ringo and Keith Moon have contributed to the drumming community and our sound. As always, you can find out more about this podcast and other episodes that we have, including pictures at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter. So let's get to it. Here is producer Jim Riley. Now, I want to get into your view, your perspective on drums and how you're producing and getting sounds and what you like from drummers and all that Great. stuff. But I want people to know who you are. Um, you share the same name, different spelling, <laughs> of a, a drummer that I've interviewed. Share the same affliction. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but uh, you know, most of our listeners are, are drummers, uh, but there's a second and third tier right. of non-drummers and uh, non-musicians as well, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, but I want people to know kind of what you're doing, what's your background. Well, is. great. Uh, well, I... I came here in 98 uh, primarily as a uh, song to, to, you know, to primarily try and get a writing deal. Um, and I got one not long after I got here, probably about a month or two, I guess, after I got here maybe at, at Curb Publishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was there for nine years as a writer. And um, before that, I had been on the road with my band, the New Dillons, and uh, for about I guess probably about nine years. I guess I'm a nine-year. That's when I hit the wall, I guess, of everything. But I've been here 20 almost now, so I guess I'm doing pretty good here. But That's two nines. Plus two nines and plus carry the three. Yeah. But uh, 
but you know the uh, being on the road, you know, uh, playing. We played, I think, forty six of the fifty states. Played music in all those, uh, pretty much every city in any of those places. The only places we didn't play were uh, Louisiana, Texas, Alaska, and Hawaii. I think are the only places I've not played music in. But um, we used to tour with. Um, well, we opened for a lot of big people, and we did some headlining shows ourselves. We are on a label in the Midwest called Red House, and back then it was kind of like we we really didn't know what we were doing. We just kind of did it, you know, and it's funny. I meet a lot of young people, and they will say, like, you know, well, how do you, how do you go out on the road and play music and become popular and known and not lose money? And of course, there's, there's, you can't, there's no way to do that. But we didn't know any better. We just did it, you know. And so we did it and lost our shirts for nine years. But we uh, learned a lot about, you know, touring, obviously, and, and independent uh, alternative band independently doing it, even though we had a record deal. We pretty much were. Record deal didn't mean that you are. Didn't mean anything, really. I mean, other than that we had records in stores occasionally. Um, and radio airplay, you know, um, but, uh, we, you know, we did our, we did our touring and then, uh, learned, learned that, that, that was not really gonna secure any kind of living, you know, I mean, it was mainly just to sort of get the experience. Glad we did it. And, um, I'm glad that, uh, I had all the experiences I did because it informed, my sensibilities when I got here a lot better than if I would have come maybe straight from college or something like a lot of people do. Yeah. So um, we uh, we uh, we did our thing and, and had two records out and had a bunch of critical success. We were on like all, all Things Considered and then um, MTV on, on the cutting edge and 120 Minutes and that were in Rolling Stone and a lot of big magazines. Great reviews, but doesn't really mean anything mm. i mean it does on a piece of paper on a press kit you know but in terms of like uh, breaking through it's still you know it's tough so you know getting here um i was doing some i was doing i was the musical director actually for a play in rochester new york where i was living before i moved here um in addition to doing the new dylan's and I was um, I met a producer here in town who was up visiting the star of the play, who was being groomed to come to Nashville. And uh, his name is Rob was Rob is Rob Galbraith, and he's a he produced Ronnie Millsap and a b- bunch of other people here. And um, so he uh, he suggested I come down here and try and get like a writing deal. And because um, he heard some of my music and thought it was different, and but you know possibly could kind of maybe fit in down here a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. I wasn't really writing country music per se. Um, so when I did come down, um, I you know I made a bunch of meetings with a bunch of different publishers, and and eventually kind of landed at Curb in a really kind of fortuitous way, and immediately kind of was thrust into the big leagues. And one of the things that I had not really done much of, other than making our own records with the New Dillons, was recording demos. Yeah. And so I think the very first demo session I ever did was like Willie Weeks was on bass and Greg Morrow on drums. Uh 
uh, Brian Sutton on guitar. Um, I'm trying to think of who the lead player was. I think maybe Jeff King. And yeah. but I mean, you know, A-listers yeah. for sure. And, and and they're looking at me for direction. And I mean, I had co-produced our band's records, but never really thought of again myself as a producer. Um, any more than I did think of myself as a musician, a touring musician when we were touring. But I mean, I was initially, I mean, it was like, well, you're, you're the producer. Tell us what you want this demo to be like. Because, you know, um, in Nashville, and this isn't really throwing stones or anything, but I mean, a lot of times that the, the musicians are so seasoned that they'll offer suggestions. And, and, and if you're not really giving any kind of direction, they'll take it. They'll take it over, you right, know, and I mean, right. and they know what they want. They, they know what people want yeah. and they know what they're doing. So uh, if they sense, you know, the sort of, if they smell that you don't know what you're doing, they'll... Ambivalence. Right. They, or, or just the ignorance, you know, they, they'll, <laughs> you know, they'll sort of save the session if they need to. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be great. It just means it's going to be kind of, I hate to say it, but kind of phoned in maybe. I mean, what they've done before. It's like, you know, past is prologue. Let's... So I learned really quickly that if I don't have a notion of what I want, they'll give it to me. Yeah. And and the first few um, sessions, uh, I was kind of like, okay, well, they probably know better than I do. Let's see what they do. And then, uh, you know, and I mean, and of course, it sounds amazing in the studio and mm -hmm. it's coming through those monitors and everything. It sounds amazing. But then you get it home and as a writer, you're like, well, this isn't really, I mean, it sounds great, yeah. but it isn't what I wanted, you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I kind of had to sort of step out of my own head as an artist, you know, when I'd make records of my band, we knew what we wanted because yeah. we wrote the songs. But here I am writing the songs, but not necessarily casting the the demo to be pitchable to my publisher to get me cuts. You know, um, it's funny because like one would think, and I, I initially fell for this too, that when you come here, it's like, well, this is these are the guys that do this. Mm -hmm. These are the guys that have played on these records that you're trying to get cut on, so get a cut on. So let them do it. But at the same time, what happens is, is that they'll they'll give you their interpretation, and 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 I think that you have to sort of, you know, be brave enough to say, well, you know, I don't hear that. That's not that's not how I hear this as a writer. It's not what I wrote in my head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the 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 genius comes between the their ideas and your ideas. In other words, it's not just the producer's idea that always works and it's not always the player's idea that works. Yeah. And what I did was I immersed myself even more so into the technical side of it. And I'm not talking about learning Pro Tools or anything. I'm more just like, I would do watch documentaries as much as were available at the time, which was 20 years ago, of like, like Brian Wilson making Pet Sounds. Yeah. And right about that time, funnily enough, the Pet Sounds box set came out that had all these outtakes right. of Brian talking to Hal Blaine and did mm -hmm. uh, Jamie or um, uh, Migliori, the keyboard player, or um, Julius, um, the the vibes guy, 
Um, or, yeah. you know, or uh, Carol Kay or, or uh, Ray Pullman on bass or whatever. And uh, and some of these, you know, little minutia of, per, of performances, uh, which I have samples of. But um, it's amazing because, like, everyone thinks of Brian Wilson. They think of Pet Sounds. They think of this genius vision, who he, he certainly was, a visionary, obviously. Yeah. But the musicians... When you listen to those Pet Sounds recordings, which I strongly suggest everyone do, drummers, guitar players, everybody, um, buy that box set. It's worth the money. And if it's even still in print, I don't even know if it's still in print, but I'm sure it's on iTunes. But it's all the sort of the sessions back and forth with the, with the talk back on and everything. Yeah. And, you know, Hal Blaine's like, Brian, I think I'm going to try this on the snare instead of the toms. He's like, okay, try it. You know, and it's like he's really short-tempered because they're in a hurry and he's a genius. You know, he's not a, he's not a personable cat. He's a, he, you know, he was, he was a freak, you know, but he's, a, he's a, a genius freak, you know, my favorite songwriter. But, um, and producer, really. But, I mean, you know, he was like, he, he knew what he wanted. I mean... The, you know, for him, the genius of casting the session was known to have Hal Blaine and two percussionists or to, you know, just the notion to have two accordions. Mm. And wouldn't it be nice? Because he knew that there'd be two sounds yeah. that w- one would be a slightly, you know, they're not going to be in perfect tune. No two accordions are ever in the, you know, yeah. it's like the old joke. How do you tell when a violin's playing in tune or playing out of tune? The bow's moving. Um, but anyway. Uh, Definition of a minor yeah. second. What's that? Definition of a minor second. Two flutes playing in unison. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, but but the but you know, just to have the two accordions and to know that there's going to be that sort of chorus effect um, on the intro, wouldn't it be nice? It's just you know to to cast that stuff. Having the having the colors available. Yeah. To paint the picture yeah. he wants. So he knew enough to even cast the thing, but then in the moment on the cutting floor, you know, per se. You know, uh, it it was like, oh, man, you know, I'll try that. I'll try anything, you know. And, I mean, the timpani guy was was brave enough to suggest something, you know, and and it worked. And, actually, it's part of the the hook. It became part of the hook, you know, which is amazing. And, you know, so as much of a visionary as he was, I also learned that he got out of his own head enough to sacrifice for the song. So it's all about the song. It's all about... You know, it's not about ego in the studio. It can't be. Right. Or it's going to be toxic, yeah. you know. And so learning that lesson really quickly for me was tough. I mean, I'm here. I'm learning, first of all, I got to say something here or they're just going to roll all over me, these players. Mm-hmm. And and I also have to say something that's going to matter, mm-hmm. something that they're going to respect mm-hmm. and something that I have to come up with ideas so the next time I come into these sessions, I'm not going to be flat-footed here. I'm going to know what I want right. and get it from these guys. Did you find that you were just maybe making something up just to have a say, just to have... No, no, I, I didn't no, do you, that you, because okay. I, I know people that do that, and it's maddening. As a producer now, yeah, it's yeah. maddening to produce an artist. I've had a few of those examples where, you know, I mean... That's what I, the reason, because you know that you hear about producers. Sorry to cut you off. No, but they're producers that are kind of hands off. They, right. They they just listen and say it sounds good. Keep going. Keep right. going. The Others, Don Was producer type. Right. As opposed to the Daniel Lenoir, who's informs every inch of the track, basically. Right. Right. And they both work. 
Right. It just seems like there's times that uh, they're just they want to be involved in the process. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. So was was there something that, uh, and I I cut you off uh, where you were going, but I'm just curious of maybe what it was that you what direction you did give, if you can recall. Getting into well, actually, ironically, it's mostly drums. Yeah. Not ironically, but, but, you know, coincidentally, it's mostly drums. I mean, for me, if a drum isn't working, the session is over. Hmm. I can fill in any other blank but that. Interesting. Because the drums inform everything. The drums cast the song. The drums push the song or pull the song. The drums empower the song. The drums dynamically influence the song. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe bass is almost as important. Hmm. Um but if the drums aren't working, the session isn't working, period. Yeah. You, cause, I mean, obviously, you can go back and do a click track and go back and, re- and fill in drums. But then no one's – then you're probably going to have to go back and do everything else, too, because people play to the drums. And you think technologically it's still that way? I think so. It almost has to be because if you're starting – like when I do my own personal records, um, I've done two solo records that um, – I do primarily I'll do guitar vocals to click tracks Mm -hmm. and then the drummer comes in first and puts all the drums down Mm -hmm. and then I'll either play bass or I have a bass player come in and play to that and then everything else fills in from that now that's not a typical way to make a record Mm -hmm. but when I have such a low budget that's kind of the best way but the drums have to be first yeah yeah and and because everything else will be influenced by that Mm-hmm. And and as a as a dynamic, you know, as a as a dynamic influence, my guitar vocals have to kind of, I'll either track them with the drums or mm-hmm. track them to click, and there's enough information there, yeah. so that when I'm sitting there, I can tell the drummer, well, this is where you move it here, pull here, you know, that kind right. of thing. But and you're giving the drummer a lot to go on, and I imagine you're especially for your stuff. Yeah, you're picking. The guy that you want to use, yeah, and it's usually coin. it's usually one of a few people because yeah. they know how to, I work well with them. Yeah, it's usually Ken Coomer or yeah. or um, you know I've used um, you know a handful of other people in that role. I think um, um, from Kentucky, uh, oh Fenner Kastner is really good too. He's really what was his name? Fenner Kastner. Oh, cool. Plays with Tommy Womack and oh, Will Kimbrough nice. and those guys, nice. but he's real good. Um, but you know they're very sensitive and they can. I mean, first of all, they know what I like. Yeah, yeah. And so, but you know, doing production like a, a traditional record, which I've done a lot of here, probably sixty or so since I've been here, probably. Um, now, do you think that you're unique as far as I wouldn't say unique, but do you think it's common for producers to think, okay? Drums have to be... I mean, everything has to be right. Everything right. has to be good. Right. That's a given. Right. But you seem to be, you seem to be putting some extra weight yeah, in that absolutely. role. And do you think other producers feel that I way? I don't know. There's a I good mean, number of them. I would right? hope. I mean, I would hope. You know, I mean, um, although I'll hear stuff, you know, um, I'll hear like, you know, records that are out now, current records that are out right now, and I'm thinking, Wow. Why didn't they spend more time, you know, mm-hmm. casting a better drummer for that? Mm-hmm. You know, and like um, Frank Liddell, a great producer here in town, a good friend. 
he always is very mindful of drummers. He's always, mm -hmm. and it shows. I mean, he does the Miranda Lambert stuff is obviously mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. drum centric, you know. Yeah. And um, I, I believe just, that's uh, Matt Chamberlain. Yeah, I think um, Matt. Yeah. yeah, or um, I think there's one other guy that's done some of that, but Matt's probably the guy. Yeah. Or uh, Fred Altringham. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I just think that it's like in live performance too. It's like drums. You yeah. know, I mean, it, it's super important. And, you know, like when you do a mix on a record, I mean, typically, you know, when you mix a record, at least when I do it, uh, I like to turn everything way, way, way down when we've kind of got the final mix mm -hmm. and see what comes out, what you still hear. Mm. Typically, it's a snare drum and the vocal if it's mixed right. Everything else is grave. Everything else is wallpaper. Mm -hmm. um, if that snare isn't happening and that, you know, and that vocal isn't there, mm -hmm. then you've done your job. You haven't done your job. Yeah, yeah. And I'll go like a, a step further with like Liberty DeVito's drum clinic, who I've um, seen a couple of his. He, I just love his playing and I love his sensibilities because he is a lyric. He plays to the lyric. Yes. And like he'll even say, like he doesn't want to see a number chart. He wants to see a lyric sheet. Interesting. And actually, Ken Coomer, who I use a lot, uh, He's in my band, The New Dillons, but I use him a lot on sessions as well. He's another drummer. He writes his notes on a lyric sheet. He doesn't use a chart. Mm. Um, because in Liberty's specific instance, what he said in his clinics is that he wants to amplify those lyrics and he wants to know where his spaces are. Mm -hmm. And so there's plenty of uh, examples online of Liberty's clinics, but... If you just put in Liberty DeVito drum clinic on YouTube, there's a million examples. Right, right. Um, one of them is the song uh, that he does, "Running on or, yeah, Running on Ice" is uh, the Billy Joel song he he uses in his clinics a lot as an example. But the the verses are just like a lot of lyrics crammed in, and uh, it's just this almost Stuart Copeland kind of. Like you're running on ice, you know, this sort of, you know, you're scrambling and it's just, yeah. it's this sort of crazy police kind of vibe. Yeah. And then the chorus just opens right up, just straight four. Yeah. And that's the chorus. And I'm running on ice. And that's what people sing. And and he uses that example too about uh, in the song, We Didn't Start the Fire, not one of my favorite songs, but. <laughs> but people know it. But people know it. Friends. It's obviously a huge song. And no one knows those lyrics in the verse. But you know, in the chorus, it's "We didn't start the fight," and everyone sings it. Mm -hmm. And what do you what do you take out of that? It's the drums and the vocal, you know. And so, not in every example, but in a lot of hit songs, yeah. You know, if, if there's no leading drum part and there's no vocal, yeah, then it's not really, it's not it's not working. Um, and so, when you turn down a, a big song, you turn it way, way, way down, so you can barely hear it. Yeah. What you mostly hear is snare drum and vocal. Yeah. And so clearly those are the two most important things. Sure. You know, and um and and a band if you're playing all at once and you're in a in a session and a band is uh is not keying with the drummer, then it's just it's a disaster. Yeah. Um guitar players, you know, I mean, yeah, guitar parts are I'm a guitar player. Guitar parts are very important to me, but not as important as a drum. The drummer just has to be knowledgeable. Yeah. That's my main thing is like if I call out a reference, I'm not a big numbers guy. I don't know the number charts really well. Okay. 
I don't read music. Okay. And so, like, I have to use influences. Like, I have to say, like, yeah. hey, this has to be kind of Tom Petty vibe. Mm-hmm. And the drummer has to know who Tom Petty is. And I mean, <laughs> I know that that sounds silly, but I mean, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people. I, I, I've worked with a lot of cats in Nashville, not necessarily drummers, but because drummers are pretty influenced, pretty knowledgeable, generally speaking. You're welcome. Um, yeah, but you know, but guitar players a lot of time are not as much. Huh. Um, it seems like guitar players in Nashville are kind of more like mathematicians. You know, um, they know their, they know all their fingerings. They know their gear. Yeah. But like you know, if I'll say like, hey man, you know the Blue Rodeo track, you know I'll I'll play. You know, do you even know the band Blue Rodeo? You know, no, we don't know. Um, you know, or like. You know, just general something pre-1980, you know. I mean, it's like a lot of the millennial <laughs> guitar players. But, um, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, it's important for people to have that reference point or right. those reference points. Right. And especially for if you're working with someone like me who isn't necessarily going to be able to say, hey, do this, uh, you know, speaking it in, in musical terms other than examples. like well, I, Let's go into that, man. Let's talk about... Um, we spoke on the phone last week and you were talking about musical examples. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I can start with like a, an idea of like some of the people who like in terms of knowing drummer, drummers knowing drum styles Yeah, is what I'm kind of talking about. Like, is there an example of when you were, when you're producing that you're going to say, okay, I need this. Right. I need like a hard backbeat like a Steve Jordan would do. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's pretty simple. That's pretty primal, mm-hmm. and also pretty pretty amazing. <laughs> and you know, and it's amazing how how important less is. Mm. You know what I mean? Like Ringo and and you know Charlie Watts and mm-hmm. the Steve Jordans and, and you know Earl Palmer. Mm-hmm. You know uh, Mickey Jones. A lot of people don't know Mickey Jones. I mean, he's like one of the most important drummers of the '60s. Mm. I mean, he played with Johnny Rivers. He played with Trini Lopez. He played with Bob Dylan in the when the, he, Dylan went electric after mm-hmm. uh, the one or two gigs Levon Helm just bailed on because he didn't like to be booed. So he left the band, and Mickey <laughs> Jones picked up where he left off with the rest of the band. Yeah. But I mean, Levon Helm. Oh right. You know. Yeah. I mean, we were lucky enough to share the stage with the band in 1996. My band got to open for the for for the band, and. Um, just to watch Levon Helm work was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you talk about a songwriter's drummer. Yeah. Yeah, and he wasn't, I mean, and Levon wasn't the main songwriter. Robbie Robertson was yeah. the main songwriter in the band, yeah. Yeah. which is really a weird, the, the band were unique in a lot of ways, and I would suggest that drummers, anybody, yeah. if you don't know the band, you need to. Yeah. And um, Here's an interesting, interesting thing about the band, is that they are the quintessential... Americana right. band, and yet Levon's the only American. Right, in they're the all band. Canadian. They're all Canadian except for Levon. <laughs> yeah, and Levon is a you know is a Southerner. Yeah, the other guys are from Toronto area, so there's that dynamic. I think that the rhythm is a. I mean, you know, I, I don't like to paint with broad strokes ever, but you know, being in the South now, being a Yankee that's now living in the South, yeah. There's a rhythm to the South, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's a rhythm to life down here, and 
it's not for everybody. You know? Sure. And it's tough for a Yankee to assimilate in the South, for sure. Yeah. It has been tough. <clears throat> but the rhythm of... There's a palpable rhythm to the South. Mm-hmm. And Southern drummers have a palpable... Mm. Rhythmic sensibility. I hate to paint with broad strokes, but it just—it's no, it's obvious. I, I noticed that when I first moved down, and I would meet friends that just had this lineage of musical experience <clears throat> yeah. that was passed down from family to family. Not music business per se, right, just but just well. When we'd get together, uh, Dad would pull out the guitar, my grandfather and my grandmother would play this, and we just—we just play. It was. It was not for anybody. It was yeah. not for church. It was those were the only things that I knew. Music mm-hmm. was either at church or in bars, mm-hmm. and you were doing it for one of those two reasons. Mm-hmm. Down here, it's just how people communicate. Yeah, and that going back to the band, those guys were like the Mississippi Delta is where every one of our major influences yeah, were from. Yeah, and we had to go there. Yeah, and they knew that, and they they always admired that, and yeah. You know, um, and Levon actually lived it. Yes. You know, so, and it was just kind of funny that he's the one who's the drummer. You know, he's the pulse. He's the pulse of it, you know. It reinforces your ideas and your point. Um, You know, and I mean, like, even in, like, you go to Memphis. If you don't go to Memphis and feel, there's a, there's a vibe there, man. And it's, it's freaky. It's weird. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's, but it's, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. And I, if you don't, if you can't feel it there, man, I don't know. And I, I'm not saying it's like, you know, you go to Memphis, you're going to be a, a great musician. But I mean, it, you can definitely sense that there's something there that's beyond just the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's definitely some mojo, juju, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. that you know that permeates that area of the world. And right. and I think that you know. Um, so I think that's really important. I think that, you know, there's a handful of rock drummers that that every drummer should know. And I'd love for, I'd love to know that every drummer that I work with would know these people. But, I mean, you know, obviously Levon, Ringo. I mean, you know, this, it's almost like a punchline. Ringo is almost like a punchline, you know, and some to some people. Yeah. But, I mean, he he basically created a sonic landscape, you know, for... For music, I mean, for pop music, yeah. and I mean, here's someone who, admittedly, never had lessons. You know, I mean, you know, and never really, never really had any kind of like training other than just doing. Yeah, and and you know, being forced into this situation of being the the biggest band in the world, um, with the light shining on them. You know, I mean, they. You know, a lot of people don't... I've met a lot of people who don't get the Beatles. It's really amazing. But, mm. I mean, there's so many things that they did that it's it's almost like you can't even talk about music without talking about the Beatles. Yeah. Pop music, anyway. Yeah. And, and, you know, for Ringo to know what to play on a song like In My Life, mm-hmm. you know, or a song like um, Ticket to Ride, you know, or whatever, or... or um, Hello, goodbye, or I'm the Walrus. I mean, these songs like the, nothing. There was no precedent for these before it happened. That's what amazes me, right? And and like, like you know the old the old uh, saying that pioneers suffer while settlers prosper. You know, uh, Ringo maybe has suffered a little of this sort of stigma 
of you know a lot a lot of people. Well, he wasn't really a drummer. He was he was lucky. Fell into that backwards. You know, uh, he was as important as anyone else in that band, if not more so, mm-hmm. um, in some ways in terms of the tracks, not necessarily the songs per se, but the tracks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would a song like "In My Life" be as good if Ringo hadn't known what not to play on that record? Yeah. I doubt it. Yeah, you know. Um, and his feel and his swing. His feel, yeah. And I mean, you know, he was a match grip guy. Charlie Watts was a traditional grip guy, uh-huh. and you know, Charlie was just as important in the Rolling Stones. I think. Yeah. Um, maybe not as uh, groundbreaking mm-hmm. per se in terms of genres like. Ringo broke ground in several different genres in the short 10 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say Charlie Watts was as groundbreaking, but certainly as important. Yeah. You know. Um, you hear their influences and totally. drummers as you go and, along. And, 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 and we still hear their influences. Yeah. Now, today. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Um, the other, a couple other drummers that I would, you know, would yeah. love to m- mention... Well, uh, Earl Palmer, of course, who's just, I mean, he is that guy that made those original 50s rock and roll beats, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, much maligned, n- not really too credited, you know. Um, I mean, he, he is as important as any of the Motown drummers. Yeah. You know, um, um, another great drummer from the 60s that, of course, Hal Blaine is another 800-pound gorilla. He's played on everything. Yeah. But um, Dino Dinelli from the Rascals is probably one of the best, right. the, the best drummers, man. I mean, and Keith Moon. Mm. Like, early Who. Yeah. Like, obviously, you know, he got out of control in the 70s and and uh, both physically and drum-wise. But it used to madden Pete, Pete Townsend that Moon wouldn't play like a straight beat, that Pete just wanted... Straight beats, and I could if we have if we can, I'll play an example of the the because Pete Townsend always used to do his own demos, and he'd play drums on the demos, and then feed it to the guys, and then the guys would do their interpretation. Gotcha. And I've got some Pete Den- demos, especially one song called "Going Mobile," which is like which we all we should yeah, know right yeah, everyone, yeah. and song. and Keith's performance on that is stunning. Yeah. But Pete's performance is so sort of straight. But it's still a great song and it still works, but without Keith's version of it, it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be the same kind of song. Yeah. Um but like even like there's a there's a, a on YouTube there's a, a footage of the Who playing this really early show, probably sixty four, and they're doing the song Heat Wave, the Martha and the Vandellas song Heat Wave. Oh wow. And Keith's just killing that song. <laughs> and it's just like it's you know it's black and white rare raw video you know or film, and um, but just to see his power and his command of those drums is just it's otherworldly you know he he's he was a freak as otherworldly right and and you know the the thing about the Who was everyone was a leader everyone was a lead vocalist or a, you know Entwistle was a lead bass player. Townsend was probably the only thing that wasn't much of a lead player. Ironically, the guitar player is holding down the fort while Keith Moon and John Entwistle are soloing, basically, through the whole song. (laughs) That's true. Uh, And, you know, it always maddened Pete Townsend that he never got a chance to break out because he always had to hold everything down. Yeah. But 
that's his role. That was his role in that band. Well, and you see him kind of filling that void in his creativity yeah. later in his solo work. Right. And yet he'll still use someone like Simon Phillips right. and like great drummers. Yeah. And but it's kind of funny to see someone like Zach Starkey, who's yep. a great drummer. Yeah. But, you know, it's not Keith Moon. Right. It's, it's not. It's, 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 uh, it's Or, you know, like... like uh, Jason Bonham. Jason Bonham and John Bonham. Obviously, it's just clearly not even the same yeah. instrument, yeah. you know, almost. That's um, why my kids play saxophone and piano. Right. Because <laughs> I'm afraid they'll take it to the next level and right. make me look even worse. They'll be like, you know, Cole, Charlie, Charlie Parker. There, and, you know, but there and there are examples the opposite direction. We just don't hear about it. Right. You know, you hear about, like, this guy was a, well, I mean, I guess Joe Picaro and Jeff Picaro, mm-hmm. both great drummers, but, I mean... You know, son taking it to the next right, a whole other place. Yeah, um, as far as you know, in- and not and not to take anything away from Zach Starkey or Jason no. Bonham, but I'm just saying yeah. it's like when you've got someone who's like iconic, difficult. Mount Rushmore yeah. of drumming, you yeah. know, to yeah. to have to live up to. I mean, yeah. it, just by by nature, you'd probably want to do the opposite, almost. Yeah. You know, yeah, to not be. I mean, you know, it's like we know people here in town, like. My buddy Dean Miller is Roger Miller's son, and I mean, oh, you know, geez. I mean, you know, he's he, you know, I mean, he he's his dad was a, was one of a kind, you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, and Dean, uh, uh, you know, bravely is not trying to live up to that. Mm-hmm. He just does his own thing, and it's yeah. great what he does. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, you can't help but be influenced by your father. Yeah, so it's a it's a real box you're set you're put into. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and it would be really, I would think it'd be really dangerous to be in that box you know because you don't know what to do mm-hmm. what would you know what is zach starkey supposed to do if he does if he's a drummer what is he supposed to do yeah. you know is he supposed to be like oh you know you're too much like your dad or you don't you don't play like your dad it's like well you should play more like your dad it's well like I, my understanding is that he got one lesson from his dad but he mostly hung out with keith right keith moon was his influence yeah yeah but he doesn't have that sort of you know, that that flammy kind of mm-hmm. fast twitch mm-hmm. muscle kind of stuff, even though that's kind of been disproven, that whole slow twitch, fast twitch thing. Mm. But, you know, back in the day, they used to call drummers either slow twitch or fast twitch, using your fast twitch muscles. But I guess now there's people that talk about musculature and whatnot that, that say that a drummer would never use a fast twitch muscle in your body. There's mm. two kinds of muscles in your body. Yeah, slow yeah, twitch. Right, yeah. And you would think that a fast twitch would be, I mean, you're a lot faster. Yeah. But but that's not really right. But but um, when you think of that sort of frenetic windmill kind of, you know, yeah. he's, he's the Pete Townsend of the drums, basically, you know, when he's playing. <laughs> but just check out any drummer. Just check out Keith Moon. Just check check out the Who doing Heat Wave. That's I think it's sixty four on YouTube. Yeah, and I mean just just I mean it's amazing how great the footage is given the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just astounding. I mean, he's just, and I mean he always comes back to the one. It's just amazing how (laughs) I don't know where he finds it. You know how he finds it in that mess. Yeah. But it's just amazing. And awesome. and uh, it's a it's a textbook. I mean it's it's a lesson. Yeah. You need to know. Yeah. And you know, a lot of those session drummers that never got any credit back in the day, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, well, Mickey Mickey Jones was one I have a couple written down here because I don't want to forget them. It's not that yes, I, I want to know. Nick Ciroli was one who's amazing. He was he was the drummer for the Tijuana Brass. Okay. But he was a session guy in L.A., mm-hmm. kind of on the same time as Earl Palmer and, and Hal Blaine. Okay. But he was a lot, you know, and and like even some of those 60s pop, British pop, like Tom Jones, It's Not Unusual. Yeah. I mean, it's a hacky song, you know, it's Tom Jones. Yeah. But the, the drums are amazing in it. It's really light, but... Yeah, I think but, it's Ronnie yeah. Verrill or Andy White. There's a dispute as to who it is. Okay. But, um, you know, I mean, like even Charlie Watts with the broken eighth note stuff, you yep. know, or just, mm-hmm. or um, George Roselli, you know, who's great. Uh, Charlie Drayton, you Ru- know, is okay. another one of my right. favorites, but he's not, I was six sixties drummer, but Georgie Wetland, Mickey Jones, yeah. Levon Helm, Dino Danelli. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even like, like in, in bands, like you can't, you can't diminish the, the, you know, in terms of setting trends and being one of a kind, one offs that set the bar for the next. I mean, you got Alex Van Halen. I mean, come on. Yeah. Mick Fleetwood. Yeah. You know, you. Can, I mean, how can you? Everyone should know Mick Fleetwood grooves. Right. Especially now. Especially with yeah, you know Americana records and. Well, stuff. you know the the Nashville drum. Right. They just did that. They yeah. Did the tribute to Alex. And they had his had his drums and. It was amazing. And mm-hmm. we we, got, we were a bit involved with that and yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> but anyways, we. That was great. Yeah, and I I love that he donated money and he lent the drums and he did the little video and everything. I mean. And that was. He didn't have to do any of that. That is, is a local charity that my wife works for. That's great. So. I just name dropped them. Uh, That's great. Two or three times, and mm. then they said, "What was that charity?" <laughs> That's great. So, uh, I'm and Al- you know, Alex is astounding. For me, I was always a voracious music listener. Yeah. And even when I was like six and seven and eight years old, I had records, and I like I remember my summers were spent with my father, who was. He was a he would sell ads for our local magazine, and we would drive all over the the county basically mm-hmm. or the the region, mm-hmm. uh, and I would spend every summer just with him every day. We'd be and I'd have my little battery operated record player mm-hmm. and my box of records that I fit between my legs and my little headphones, and I would just I mean you know obviously we'd hit bumps and the records would skip and I'd get all kinds of chips in my records and everything and I'd just have to buy another copy but. I was, that's all I did was listen to music. And then when I went home, all I did was go in my room and play my guitar. As a matter of fact, in a, you know, in the high school yearbooks and the junior high, you sign, right, right, hey, right. see you next year, AFA, RMA. Yeah. And everyone would always say in mine, like even in my junior high, hope to see you outside this summer. Because I never even went outside. I mean, I was like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I never even had any desire to be outside. All I wanted to do was be in my room playing my guitar. Yeah. That's all I ever did. Yeah. And so... We got, but I think going to your thing about missing certain things, I think that there's two kinds of listeners. I think there's listeners that like find their thing and then just live it. And then there's listeners that don't want to miss anything and they want to hear everything. Yeah. And maybe you were one of those. I know I was. I found my thing and I was into it and it crossed different genres. Mm-hmm. Um, there were certain bands that I just could not get enough of. Um, but Leonard Skinner. Right? 
Although we're talking about laughing about it, but Artemis Pyle. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, you talk about a beast. Yeah. Especially on that record, uh, the, the Leonard Skinner record, One More From The Road. The, the drum power on that record is is um, unbelievable. Then, of course, Neil Peart. Yeah. Peart, Peart. But he even said it's Peart yeah. in an interview. But... Um, and that was, I mean, and I've said this many times before, I mean, Neil was a huge influence on me, and then I had to break away from that yeah. um, to to become employable as far mm, as, right. you know, because yeah. my desire to work with many people and songwriters included. Right. Um, but now I there's this kind of circle. I go back as, uh, as I'm older, and I'm thinking, I'm so inspired by... The energy and, and the influence that he has had right. on me, and he has on other people, just as a as a as a musician, mm-hmm. uh, and whatever. And everyone has opinions, and there's some very strong opinions on either side mm-hmm. with him and mm-hmm. that band. But I got into a, a conversation, not an argument, but just a conversation back and forth with a drummer, and I was like, "Look, yeah, he doesn't swing like Bono does, right? But I he doesn't swing at all, really. Right, doesn't swing at all. It's a metronome, but I." <laughs> Would not be playing drums without him. So right. that right, right there, he was a catalyst. So sure, but I don't want to get into that. But I, um, there were two things that I wanted to get into. You have some musical examples, right? And I don't know if you have a couple you want to just uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, we can. Up. Yeah, we can. Like while we're doing this, um, I don't know how this is going to sound. That's what That's I'm addiction to peppermint you have. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just trying to not cough. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Everything in my power to not cough. I actually got this candy cane from Santa. We were out driving around looking at the lights, and there's a guy that dresses up like Santa. He's not the real Santa. The real Santa lives in the North Pole. Right. right. We all know that, kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. But anyway, he was out handing out candy canes. So I got one from, directly from him. Um, so we were talking about... Um, let me find the one I really want to play. Like how Ringo, like Ringo, and how important Ringo is, was, is. Um, so here's here's uh, the rhythm track. I won't tell how I got it. Um, <laughs> because that's like a CIA thing. Uh, but it's the rhythm track that got to get you into my life. Yeah. Not necessarily everyone's favorite Beatles song, probably, but... The, what I want to explain here is how important the offbeats he does in the verses, and then when the chorus kicks in, it's nothing but backbeat. And it's just so big and so important. And it's one of like one of the most simple drum tracks you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. All you're going to hear is rhythm guitar and drums on this, and a very distant vocal that's a bleed through. Gotcha. And now here comes the...
kicks right back in. It's just. It's amazing what you don't hear. I love that stuff. Yeah. That's cool. Anyway, so there's an example of like, you know, backbeat. It's just, it's just too hard to not. I mean, it's sedu seductive, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. And and it just brings you in. Now here's another version. Here's another. Hello, goodbye. Here's just the drums and keyboards. Before that, it was just four on the floor, you know. Yeah. I mean, not, no one did anything like that. Any, I mean, it was like he landed from another planet. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, is playing fills like that and riffs like that in a song and being ballsy enough to even do it. But, and that's what's amazing now about hearing Abe Laborial Jr. Oh, yeah. He's, McCartney, yeah. who's just such a wonderful drummer. Yeah. Uh, his somewhat interpretation yeah that McCartney allows them to do what they want to do I think more so than any other band that McCartney's ever had right and yet there are certain songs that uh, Abe is like I've got to play this right part. You have it to play is that, yeah. the song yeah it's true you know? so here's like a, a quick little um, moving on from Ringo <clears throat> Here's uh, Who Are You by The Who, um, Keith Moon's drums in Who Are You. And here's a song that's like, you know, I mean, it was an odd song, no question. When it, when it came out, it, you know, it was, we all know it, I'll play a snippet of it. <laughs> 
it kind of steadies the, the track when the drums come in. Yeah. But in the in the verses, it's the, it's really hard to find the one. It's like it's such a broken beat, mm. and it kind of it collapses down on the on the verse. As a producer, you have to be amazed that someone would allow this. But, um, and he's, you know, he's all the pushes, the guitar thing. It's really weird. So here's here's the ISO track of that. Now that you know the song, and when you listen to the ISO track without the guitar, it's like, how did this even? This is can't be right. Very steady here, and then the, then the groove kicks in. It's so great. You can hear him yelling in the background. Very kind of unsteady. And yet perfect. Perfectly out of time. There's hope for me yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there again, the chorus is straight. The verses are all over the place. And that, that goes back to that whole vocal drum chorus is no tricks. I love the yelling. That's great. As straight again. I mean, as straight as he can play. Oh it's just God. even it's bigger. That's it. But I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, in terms of casting a drummer for that song, I, I can't think of anybody else that would have played it better. Yeah. Such an odd song. Yeah. And the time is really mm-hmm. weird. And yet, who else could have done that? Yeah. You know? So how do we put all these things as far as, because, I mean, these are drummers, I mean, that we know, we hear, we hear on the radio, mm-hmm. they're... With bands, they've played. Well, Ringo's played with other. Yeah. Uh, there's great examples of Petty using him, and, mm-hmm. you know, and using that thing that he does and still does, even yeah. though his playing has he's changed. changed. Yeah, he's changed a lot. As his, a matter of fact, there's there's a, there's a great video. Mark Hudson, the producer, guitar player, songwriter, he worked with Ringo a lot, and. He talks about how Ringo's drumming has changed on YouTube. There's plenty of videos. Of, oh, cool. And actually, I mean, it's to make this whole thing about Ringo, but there's um, <laughs> there's there's a guy. Um, people should just look this guy up. He's amazing. And um, I'll give you his name as we're talking here. He did a five-minute, five-ish minute 
basically capsulization of all the Beatles songs mm -hmm. from a drummer. Mm -hmm. It's this guy on a roof, and he's on this rooftop playing, um, and it's just a video, and he just plays like snippets of, I think like thirty Be Beatles songs, yeah. and just to show, like just to show how. Uh, important, you know, um, R Ringo's drumming is. It's the guy. The guy's name is Kai Smith, K Y E Smith. Okay. And it's just go to YouTube and look up a five-minute Beatles drum chronology by Kai Smith. And the guy just plays. I mean, just I've seen. Yeah, that. it's I crazy. He's that. on a rooftop. Yeah. Yes. And it's just. Uh, it's just. You know, it's it's amazing how how many different styles yes. you know Ringo is responsible for. Yeah. And how how definitive each of those are yep. of him doing them. Yeah. So again, I mean, uh, there's a million drummers out there, they're all you know, everyone should be doing their own thing. But in terms of like, you know, Ringo was such a I mean, this whole—he's hijacked this whole this whole podcast, but <laughs> it's just you know. I mean, it really is pretty amazing how yeah. groundbreaking yeah. he was. And so, in order—is he like the chops master? Is he like yeah. you know Danny Seraphine or yes. you know or or uh, Vinnie Yeah, those kind of guys. No, but are those guys anything without him? No. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they wouldn't have had the launch pad, the jumping board, the you know. Uh, you know, Those guys are such major influences to to musicians and and obviously many drummers. Mm -hmm. But I always use this as an example, and my apologies to Vinny, <laughs> is that um, because of the work that I've done and and that I'm surrounded by with songwriters and mm -hmm. you know things like that, it's I've never. And, and uh, this is just the genre in which I've worked. Mm -hmm. So this is just my personal story. I've never heard somebody say, can you play a Vinnie fill going into right. the chorus? Right. But multiple times I've heard, can you play kind of a left-hand lead, mm -hmm. some kind of backwards Ringo thing that's mm -hmm. going to elevate this? Or I want a Charlie Watts backbeat. Right. Or it's just something along that line. Right. You know? And again, I think it's just... The genre in which that I found myself in. Right. Maybe if we're in L.A. and we're playing for jazz sessions or yep. fusion sessions, yep. it would be different. Right, right, right. You right. wouldn't hear, hey, play a Ringo exactly. film in a fusion. But, I know that it's it's hard to deny Ringo, and I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yes, I don't think he's hijacked this. I think you're, the point is being made. And I think that we have a lot of people that listen to, this, uh, listen to us that um, are trying to figure out what it is that they can do, especially mm -hmm. about well, drummers, specific that that mm -hmm. part of our audience that want to figure out what it is to make themselves more of an in-demand player. Yeah. Whether it is for sessions or mm -hmm. for live playing, and so these everything we're talking about is important. In terms of that, for me, but like, how do we tie all this stuff right, together? What I look for, yeah. not that I'm all that, but I mean, I am a producer here. I do a lot of work. You're my guest. So, yeah, I'm your guest. Uh, so, um, you know, I mean, I want a drummer that's bold, that's uh, willing to kind of challenge me on what I want, you know, mm. and and we'll find the answer together, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm, I don't necessarily have every perfect notion in my head, you know. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, it's really about keeping the, the artist happy and, and making the best music you can. But what's really important to me from a drummer is that they're versatile, that they know references, that they have a big frame of reference. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to sell cats at a pet store, you should know all the kinds of cats. You know what I mean? You you know, so I mean if you're if you're gonna be a drummer, a More session a drummer. Yeah, yeah give me a little uh yeah. Tabby. Give me a tabby. Course. Yeah, give me a tabby. But uh you know, I mean, it's kind of important to kind of know and and what's and what's refreshing is that uh a lot of the younger artists that I work with actually know more uh of the references and some of the older artists I work with or some of the older players I work with. Yeah, some of the younger players, probably because it's so accessible, yeah, um, are a lot more knowledgeable. And so I'm really happy that the next generation is realizing that that's important. And because of whatever, Spotify, whatever, they can get it at their fingertips. YouTube. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, when we were kids... Mm -hmm. We'd have to. It was an effort to learn about all these different people. You'd have to walk to the record store. You'd have to wait for the record to come out. You'd have to, you know, play it on the vinyl. I mean, you know, it's like you can't just jump around like you know with a cassette tape that you can with a. There's a new painting in the cave. <laughs> Let's go check it out. Exactly. Well, I'm, okay, like, we're not that old. Let's right, but yeah, cave drawing. But you know, but uh, I just think that it's really important to know what you're doing, and and have a knowledge of what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do and what you want to reference in your playing as much as yeah. not. Yeah. And it's important for me as a producer to know that my drummer or my art, my, my player is going to know what kind of groove mm -hmm. Mick Fleetwood is capable of doing and, and what a Mick Fleetwood groove is mm -hmm. so that either it's like, Hey, do that or Hey, don't do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, but to not know is toxic. Because uh, as much as you'd like to think that all this stuff just falls out of the sky like heaven and genius, you know, uh, it, it's not. It's, it's, it's learned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think that, that it's incredibly important to be knowledgeable about the past, what came before, yep. so that either you don't repeat it or you do. You would not believe how many sessions I do with drummers who just do not know how to tune a drum. Mm. I mean, you know, it's really important to have good sound in drums. Even if it's a house kit, mm -hmm. you should be able to tune it in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you can't, that's that's trouble. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, and there's a lot of people that have to use house kits. Right. Um, especially when you're working on low budgets because people don't have money for cartage and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, Sometimes so, we'll bring in a snare drum. Right, know your yeah. know your stuff. Yeah, what I'd be like, know your music and know your know your style. Okay. Know what makes you sound best. Know what a good tuned drum sounds like in the mix, and know when it's not working and know what to do to fix it. I mean, that's really important. Yeah, because yeah, you can sample everything, but you know, right. Hopefully, you don't have to. In a perfect right. world, you wouldn't have to. Um. So I think, you know, having good hardware, having good gear and knowing knowing how to use the gear you are provided or no, you own mm -hmm. is really important. And, you know, and obviously 
you know, I mean, it sounds silly, but, you know, playing in time. <laughs> you know, I mean, silly. you know, or or not in time, depending. Knowing when to lay out, knowing when to lay back, knowing when mm-hmm. to push. Right. I rarely ever like drummers that push. Mm. I'm almost always, you know, lay, lay it back. Drummer. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and you're... This is kind of along that same line. I mean, this is all good advice for everybody. But this is kind of a... I thought of this question is, what advice would you give a young drummer? What advice would you give to a seasoned drummer? Kind Mm -hmm. of a two-part kind of question. Everything you're saying is great, but is there something specifically you would say to someone just coming in Mm -hmm. to doing this and somebody maybe that's been doing it for a long time? Yeah, if you could, definitely. If two you different could, with things. confidence, tell this person. Yeah, the se- to the season's drummer, get out of your own head more. You know, you don't know everything. None of us ever will. The, to the season drummer, yeah. this is. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there are so many drummers who just, season drummers who just think that it's just, this is what you do, man. No, it, it's, it's you, you got to keep learning. Mm-hmm. You hopefully we never want to stop learning. Hopefully we never do stop learning. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are into, you know, if you know the shit out of every possible pop fill that ever was made, then listen to some raga, mm-hmm. or listen to some Indian music, or listen to some reggae, or listen to. Yeah. I mean, listen to something that you don't normally listen to. You know, get out of your own space. Get always be growing, always be learning. Yeah. Why would you want to just phone it in? And to a young drummer, learn everything you can. I mean, listen to everything you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Know what you like and what you don't like. Know what you can pull off and what you can't pull off. Mm-hmm. And if you can't pull it off, figure out a way to pull it off. Yeah. Or don't. But either way, I mean, you know, it's like you. you if you want to, if you want to, you have to, def- it's, it's like a tightrope. It's like with songwriters. Um, you have to be, you, you have to be in a constant state of becoming a constant, like mm. Bob Dylan said, the constant uh, musicians or artists are in a constant state of becoming and hopefully you never become. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and so like for a songwriter, it's like you, you have to know what your thing is because you have to kind of be known for something mm. and at the same time once you are known for something then if you if you do it professionally as a songwriter as a professional songwriter you're going to be asked to challenge your own mm, like you know a songwriter will get a songwriting deal because they do something no one else does mm-hmm. and then immediately they're asked to do what everyone else does mm. it's crazy it's like a reverse psychology thing but with with musicians, I think that it's really important to kind of know what you do best yeah. and then maybe try and know what you don't do best mm. and then maybe try and figure that out, figure out what it is that you... Because you have to have a definable something. Like sure. when someone calls Matt Krause, they know what they're going to get. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it'd, I've be, changed. it'd be nice when you get there <laughs> to say, oh, I do this now too. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, oh, well, add that to the list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and and so I think that there's no real answer. Yeah. I don't mean to be like so. 
elusive. No, I know what you're saying, but... Um, but I always think it's important. It's always important to know more. Knowledge is good, as it says in Favor University and Animal House. On the, on the side, is knowledge is good. Um, but, you know... It took uh, me a second to get right, that. That's, yeah. that's where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's like I'm always, always listening to everything that I could possibly listen to. Like just last night there on on SNL was an amazingly talented new artist. Mm-hmm. And it's like, where'd he come from? Mm-hmm. Who is this person? How did I not know him? Mm-hmm. You know, and now you, you have to know him. You know what I mean? It's like constantly, please just keep learning, keep growing. Can we address that just for a second? Um, I, I think that we've referenced a lot of bands that and, and drummers that are just heavily important, very important in our, that created pop music, mm-hmm. pop sensibility uh, from the 50s and 60s and some of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we love that stuff. And you're saying that there's a lot of young people that are, that are that you're meeting that are just showing great interest in this yeah. music. And it's it's inspiring to, to know this. Yeah. The young generation are... are Soaking that up. Right, because a lot of people put young people down. Yeah. And it's not cool, man. No. Because it's like, that's the future. And if, well, and yeah. if, we, don't, if we don't nurture yeah. and encourage, yeah. then, then the future is ruined. Getting drum sounds that drummers should know, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the studio. You talked about good-sounding drums, good-sounding yeah. gear. I mean, technically. Whatever uh, you think. I mean, the snare think. is obviously super important. Yeah. And, and you know, there seems to be this sort of crazy uh, predilection for this sort of uh, piccolo snare stuff, man. It's just like... Why is that? I, I, it never records well. It never sounds great. You know, I mean, a nice woody sounding drum. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a drum. It's supposed to be wood. Yeah. You know, it's supposed to sound woody, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it just depends on what you're recording. Yeah. But, like, how it sits in the track. Mm-hmm. I don't know technically, like, you know, plies and hoops sure, and sure. all that That's stuff. Fine. Although I do, I do collect drum badges. Oh. <laughs> I love I love the whole I love drums I just love you know I've never played them they're really per se I mean I've sat down at kits before but um, I just have a fascination with them you know yeah but I love gear so I love like looking at drums and like vintage drums and black beauties and yeah. old slinger lens and well, you say wood snare drum, black beauty, such a standard, and that's not a wood drum. Right. You're saying a woody sound, a woody sound, a like warm a, a sound. warm sound. Yeah, yeah. You know, something that makes a snare sound like a snare and not like a, a toy pistol. You know, <laughs> um, but it just seems like everyone just wants these really high poppy, pop, 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 you know, kind of snare drums that every all the engineers always have to after the fact. Yeah, the drummers come in, they do their thing, and they pack up and they go. Yeah. The the you know the engineers are the one wrestling with the drums for five days. Yeah. Well, right. and you know what's funny you say that because I'm I'm hearing a lot of stuff that's coming out, a lot of new music, especially out of Nashville, and uh, there's this really cool snare sound that's that's quite the opposite of that. This is, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. you know kind of, um, kind of a, a Ringo right. uh, 
meets Mick Fleetwood type thing. Mm-hmm. That's been really fun to play with. Um, I'm finding myself tuning my drums a, a lot that way, tuning mm-hmm. way down mm-hmm. to record more so than playing. And oh, when yeah. I play live, sometimes I'll have that same drum, and I'll just crank the shit out. Well, yeah, because you can't, you can't, it won't cut through live. Yeah. But on a, you know, on a, on a mix, it's, you know, it's yeah. really, it, there's a certain sonic space for drums yeah. in any mix. And that hasn't really changed much nice. over the years. And I think that it occupies that certain part of the track. Mm-hmm. And so you've only got a finite amount of space for a drum. Yeah. And if it's not cutting through, it's got to cut through, obviously. But it also can't be like, you know. Somebody described it as, I want this snare drum or this cymbal to not go over the right, sound, right. but through the sound and be part through, of the yeah. mix. Mm-hmm. Um, has there been something that a drummer's brought in, you're like, that's the thing, mm-hmm. or that's yeah. not the thing? Yeah, Steve Bowman, the drummer from the Counting Crows, who works a lot here. One of my, uh, one of, has been on the show. He's great, yeah, yeah. dear friend. He uh, has a thing, he actually, I think, gave it to Eric uh, Fritch. It's called the Tear Maker. He called it the Tear Maker. Yeah. Because it's like, it's perfect. It like... Snare drum? Yeah, it's a snare. It just fits in the track perfectly. And he says it makes, brings tears to your eyes. But he calls it the Tear Maker. <laughs> but anyway, on a lot of sessions, man, you know, drummers will bring in their own stuff. And Eric has that old Ludwig House kit. And we just put the tear maker on. Just just put try it. And the drummer's like, I don't know. And you hear it in the track. It's like magic. It's like mm. something about that drum. I don't even know what it is. I think it's, it might be like a Yamaha yeah. snare or something like yeah. that. I think. I don't I think it's like super high. Yeah. I don't, it's not a super high-end drum. Yeah, but those, it just, are, those it are surprising. I, the ones that I record the most... Mm. I've got one that I use for quiet tracks, and it was my wife's student Yamaha mm-hmm. that her mom bought for 50 bucks. Yeah. And I tell her mom, I said, I use this a lot. Said, well, I'm so glad. Right, I yeah. spent 50 bucks on right, that. Yeah. Like, well, it's, it got used. Right, it's, it's been, been it's on gotten its money's worth. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there again, it's probably tuned perfectly. You know, I mean, if it's tuned wrong and it's an amazing drum, it's probably not as good as a really well tuned fifty dollar sure. Yamaha. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, I mean, I just it's more just be mindful of your sound and what yeah. you're leaving mm-hmm. behind on the track. Then mm-hmm. listen, you know, ask to hear what you know. Yeah. I, I, well, another thing that I think drummers should do is ask to hear what they've tracked. Yeah. You know, and also ask to hear for a final version of it. Mm-hmm. As long. As long as it doesn't, like, like you promise not to release it on iTunes. I mean, so many people get so silly about how precious they are about releasing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, no one's going to hear your stuff anyway. Chances are, you know what I mean? <laughs> no one's going to buy your record anyway. People settle down. But, you know, that, that, old, that old thing, that's, that's, as, that's as optimistic as a hidden track on an Americana record, you know. Um, <laughs> like anyone's even going to get that far. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I mean, ask for the, the mix when it's yeah. done so you can hear what you did, so you yeah. know what you sound like yeah. through that person's ears, you yeah. know, through that engineer's ears. Now, granted, it may not be how you think you sound. It may not be how you want to sound. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's not your call. It's theirs. That's a tough one. So you're right. you have to really kind of be egoless. Yeah, you're and right. And that, that was the hard, another hard thing for me to learn being here is like, 
it's not about your vision. It's not about anything. It's about the track. It's about what you leave behind. I've had to learn that. It's tough. As you know, you buy, you, you get a, you get a CD from someone and you played on it. Yeah. And you're like, fuck, man, that's not what I played. Yeah. That's not how I sound. That snare didn't sound that way. Yeah. Well, it's because maybe you didn't leave enough of a good track that they had to go sample something or whatever mm-hmm. because your drums weren't hitting it in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, find out why they did it. Find out why that is it just because the producer or the engineer is a crazy, you know, lunatic when it comes to mixing? Or is it because you didn't leave the right imprint behind? Yeah. Yeah. There's one drummer who's in town here who, when I first started using him, he's very popular. And um, when I first started using him, man, he hit so hard. Mm-hmm. He hit the drums so hard that we couldn't use anything he did. Mm-hmm. And and I told him, mm-hmm. I said, dude, he asked how it all came out. And I said, dude, you hit too hard, man. You need to back it off. Mm-hmm. And And he started hearing that from other people. And he changed his playing Mm. and he's one of the most in-demand drummers in town Mm -hmm. and um you know i'm not saying i had anything to do with it i'm just saying that like you know sometimes it's good to be honest and say Mm -hmm. man you're great at your fills and your rhythm's perfect and your timing everything but you hit too hard yeah and you're not playing you know the you know the uh, lp field Mm -hmm. you know this is a little studio project studio play the room yeah. You know, and and uh, so he did, and he he's learned, and consequently, anytime I use them now, we don't have to use samples. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting though because we see a lot of very dynamic, heavy hitting players that I think um, are getting a lot of attention for good reason. It's entertaining. It sounds great. It's mm-hmm. super solid. It's driving a band live. But then when I look at that, you the studio is a completely different thing. Totally. And I think of some of the more in-demand drummers. We talked about Fred Eltringham mm-hmm. briefly and Matt Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. These guys are playing with... I know they're, they're softer players. I know that their sticks are a little bit smaller. Then it yeah. makes you, just makes you think just addressing what you're saying. Well, think about it. You're in a room, you know, five by five maybe in a drum room. Mm-hmm. And you got mics all over your kit. You don't need to hit harder. You don't need to do anything. I you see barely need to breathe. Some of the documentary of, of uh, the Beatles in the studio. And right. And you see Ringo playing. And he's just barely touching. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, man, just learn your learn your craft. Sorry, we just have to bring it all the way back. That's to good. Ringo. Ringo again, yeah. But, you know, I mean, the ultimate thing is, man, just, you know, make good decisions. Know what you're doing. Know what you're talking about. Play in time when when needed. Mm-hmm. And know your kit and know your history. And have a good time. All, All the, the time, time. Malty. That's what I say. <laughs> man, we've covered it. I, I love it. Good, it's man. Great. Good. Well, this I was really, fun. Thank really you. really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, dude. Appreciate All right, man. It. Yeah. Good. So there you go. There is Jim Riley. Um, I love getting the perspective of a non-drummer. It's obvious to me that Jim loves drums. He loves everything about them sonically, much the way we all do. Um, But um, great advice. Uh, I love the musical examples, and I hope you guys enjoyed those too. 
Again, uh, thanks to Mike Jackson for helping me get this produced. Uh, Check out Zach Albetta from last week, and he's got a new episode coming up next week. As we get into the swing of the new year, I want to start getting back to some of these comments uh, that I see and just love the input from our listeners. Uh, One of them is a comment from iTunes. Uh, This person wrote, uh, it was last November, uh, by Z13KZ Hats. Hmm, I wonder what he likes. Uh, Anyways, he writes, I've learned so much from listening to WDP. I'm guessing that means working drummer podcast. So that's cool. Uh, I've learned so much from listening to WDP. So much more in-depth than the magazines currently out. I loved the Kevin Murphy podcast. I've been binge listening to catch up. I'm almost there. Do you think you'll do an interview with Lester Estelle? Well, that's a good question. Um, Love to, man. Uh, But thanks so much for that comment. And um, guys, keep listening. Again, iTunes, I don't think I mentioned it at the beginning, but you can subscribe to iTunes and this podcast will be sent to your smart device. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you around. Bye-bye.